There are a lot of questions. <laughs> so this will be good. Thanks for being willing to answer. First of all, Mark, thank you very much for your first two sessions. So, I mean, a lot of information. So, so helpful. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. We haven't really met yet. Can you give us a little, just a tiny bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Caitlin McCaffrey. I'm the Director of Women's Ministry at Harvest USA. I am a Philadelphia native, and I have a tiny dog named Pancake. <laughs> Can't imagine what that dog looks like. Okay. <laughs> Come see the booth for some photos. <laughs> Well, we have, a, we have a lot of questions here, and I think on, be, on behalf of us, they'll be answering the questions, I'll just be asking. I think we all realize that these questions represent a lot of different things, like, like a, a lot of emotion, a lot of desires, a lot of struggles. So please, if we don't get to your question, don't feel put off. It's just because we don't have time. And they'll be here till 1.30ish? Yeah, so they'll be here over lunch into the afternoon. They'd love to talk to you. Also, please don't be put off if they give a short answer to it. They, some of this stuff, it could be an hour-long conversation. So maybe they're just going to give a framework, a way to think about it. So just understand the limitations of what we're, they're trying to do. Give them a bit of grace to it and realize they'll be here a lot longer today if you want to engage in longer conversation with them. So I'm just going to pray for our time, and then we'll just get right into it. God, we're very grateful for our time together this morning. Thank you for the word that was shared with us and how it applies to some of the deepest longings and desires and purposes of our life. Thank you that you are very, very pro-sex. And we're just saddened by the way our culture and even our own sinfulness has, has shifted that and, um, and shaped it in a way that is sometimes unrecognizable from its created purpose. Help us now as we lean into these uh, questions to gain wisdom, to gain clarity, would you work through our time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just read the question, and you guys figure out how you want to answer it. Okay? Uh, first question is this. Is masturbation bad? In other words, is masturbation without fantasy or porn or the like considered a sin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, a um, <clears throat> colleague of mine got saved when he was around college age probably. And the first thing he did when he got a Bible was go to the back of the concordance and go to M and look to see what does the Bible say about masturbation? And he found nothing. It doesn't mention the word once in that. And so uh, there is this question of, yes, is this acceptable behavior for a single or married Christian to engage in? And uh, like many things in scripture, there's explicit, clear passages that say thou shalt not uh, that's clear. Other things we have to, um, what's, what, what the theological term is by good and necessary consequence. So is there enough in scripture to give us a framework that we can apply that framework to the act of masturbation and say, would the Bible condone this or not? And what we would say is that obviously, as was already kind of mentioned in this question, lust is clearly called as sinful. Jesus talks about that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. If you even look upon a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery in your heart. So clearly any type of fantasy, pornography, lust, that is all sinful. What about the act itself? Well, there's a two things at least we could say about that. First of all, uh, this is a very common question, the question about masturbation without lust. And I do not want to uh, assume that that's never possible 
to masturbate without lust, but it's rare, if not almost impossible, I would say. And so, so I think the hypothetical is, is actually more of a hypothetical than a reality, that usually masturbation is fueled and accompanied with lust of some sort. Um, that would be the first thing. So it's more of a hypothetical than usually than a reality, but let's say it is a reality, and maybe for some of you, you would say you experienced that. Um, <clears throat> what we would say is if you understand God's design, if you understand the purposes of sex, the form of it, <clears throat> the reasons for it, masturbation does not fit in that design. It doesn't fit with the purposes of growing intimacy and connection and celebration of a marriage. It doesn't fit with the purposes of binding yourself to someone else. Uh, that oxytocin that is released is supposed to be released as you're looking at your spouse in the eyes, um, all these types of things. So we would say that if you understand God's good design, we can see how masturbation does not fit within that design. And we would call whether you're single or married, because just because you're married doesn't mean there aren't seasons you were called to restrain desires and have a season of chastity. And it's good in singleness to prepare yourself for that. Train yourself in your singleness to know how to refrain from acting on the desire for sexual release, uh, because that is the call of, of Christ to, to, be, to be completely um, devoted to your spouse. And, and some of you might say, well, what about in marriage? I can fantasize about my spouse. And we would say, even in that, that is not God's design. That's not God's purpose for your sexuality. It's a binding act with your spouse where you're binding together in that way, so. Great, thanks, Mark. Next question is this, what advice do you have of keeping a Christian relationship pure when there have been sexual mistakes that have already taken place. And there's a PS, PS, both people involved want to improve impurity. What would you say to that? Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for the question. I just wanna normalize that that's a pretty common struggle in dating relationships, even amongst Christians, sexual purity, how can we pursue this? Um, so. It sounds like the questioner, there's already been perhaps sexual sin within this relationship or within a prior relationship. And so with, with sin, we're called to repentance, right? We're called to come into the light, to invite others into our struggle, and to go before the Lord and confess our sin. Um, and so I would say start there. Start with Christ himself going before him confessing your struggle. But then there's also some practical things that probably need to happen, and they're, they're likely gonna need to happen in the context of help from others. Um, one of the things that ensnares Christian couples in sexual sin is that they're not living in community, in the light, and no one knows what their struggles are or where they're at, even with this topic. Um, and so, there's many practical things that I could give to you and say, you know, do this, don't do that. I think that's best really dug into and, and fleshed out within a discipleship relationship or bringing someone into that. But some basic things would be, if you have significantly struggled sexually with your boyfriend or girlfriend, um, your time alone needs to be radically changed immediately as part of your repentance. Think about it like um, making a pizza, right? So if you have dough, cheese, pepperoni, sauce, and you have an oven that's set to 350, what's probably gonna happen? You're making a pizza, right? So think about it in that way. Am I setting all these ingredients out and setting it all up and then saying, I hope that this doesn't happen, right? What are those practical things that you're setting yourself up for? 
And then the last thing I would say is mistrust yourself in this um, because you are going to be inclined to say, I'm going to be okay or we can hang out till 2 a.m. and watch a movie and all of this. Like you're going to be inclined and so you need someone else to speak into that and to help you think clearly. Great. Thanks, Caitlin. Okay, how is uh, sexual abuse seen within the Bible? And can someone really cope with it as a Christian? Can I speak to that? Yeah. Yeah, so first of all, I want to speak to the person who asked this question. And I know that in a group this size, there's men and women who have experienced the tragedy of sexual abuse. I myself am a survivor of sexual abuse. And so I want to speak to you um, in a way that maybe perhaps the Lord Jesus has spoken to me tenderly, with compassion, with great love. And Jesus has great anger against the evil of sexual abuse. And so what does the Bible say about it? It says that it's evil. It says it's wrong. Um, And the question also just asks a little bit about healing and help. Is it possible, the question asks, to have healing and help for this? And the answer to that is yes. The gospel speaks to one who is oppressed. The the gospel speaks to one who is suffering in anguish, who has been harmed, who has been victimized. The gospel speaks to that person. The gospel speaks to you in that and to me in that. Um, I even think of something like Psalm 10. Psalm 10 describes this scenario in which someone is being ambushed and someone's crouching like a lion to get them. That's, that's sexual abuse. That's sexual assault. I'm not saying that Psalm is speaking specifically about sexual abuse, but that dynamic is the dynamic of sexual abuse and sexual assault. The scriptures speak great hope into that. Don't walk in that alone. Seek help for that. Seek counseling. Seek people in your church who can walk through you who can bear your burdens with you, who can sorrow with you, as the Lord Jesus also sorrows with you in the healing process for that. Thanks, Caitlin. As a Christian, should I call someone by their preferred pronouns if it's opposite to the gender that God gave them? Yeah, so I did start to address that issue in my talk um, This is an issue that good Christians come to various conclusions about. And um, a principle that I think is helpful, I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, is um, the Pharisees in the New Testament, what they did is they wanted so carefully to obey the law that they put a fence around the law and made new laws to make sure that they wouldn't break what was obvious in God's word. And uh, that can be dangerous Uh, when we do that. So as a principle, we want to be very careful. What's, I don't, I don't ever want to say anything that would bind your conscience beyond what scripture clearly says. So what, what I mean by that is you have to know what is right based on God's word, not what I think is right. And I think this is an issue where we have to think biblically, not just about do I use the pronouns or not, but what are the biblical principles that I do know about that then I can apply biblical wisdom to this issue. 
Um, and I'd say the same thing applies for a gay wedding. Uh, if, if, I, if my family member or close friend is getting married and they invite me to the wedding, do I go or not? Uh, it's a, we would put the, both of these things in the same category as the Bible is not clear enough on these to say beyond a shadow of doubt, no matter what the circumstance, you always do this. We would say more, you think about biblical principles, apply it to the specifics of that situation and be led by the spirit, be led by your own conscience. A few things to consider on this. Number one, Romans 14 talks about whatever is not of faith is sin. And what that means is if you are choosing to use preferred pronouns, can you do that saying, I am glorifying God and I'm loving this person and I'm following the Bible when I use these person's preferred pronouns? Maybe the answer to that is I'm not. That would not be because one of the issues in this and the question you have to wrestle with is the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is to not lie. Do not lie. And it's a real, it's a real struggle to know is calling someone by a pronoun that is not accurate to their biological sex lying. And this gets tricky. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to give you uh, all of the scenarios, but uh, I will say that we, you should think deeply about this and you should know why you're doing what you're doing based upon scripture. We are called to speak the truth in love. So again, my, I think the, if you want to call it the safe route with this issue is uh, to avoid pronouns. Avoid, I mean, by and large, if I'm talking to Mark, I'm rarely going to be talking to him and say he or him. Uh, usually I'm going to say the second, the second person, you. Um, so Hopefully, there, the, those situations where that would happen are going to be, be uh, rare. Um, but that's kind of, I, I don't want to say more than that because I think it's, it's a wisdom issue by and large. But the wisdom has to be dependent on what scripture reveals about these things. And I will say again, Christians are coming to, good Christians who love the Bible, love God's word, love God, are coming to different conclusions. Some are saying it's a wisdom issue. Sometimes you can do it. Other Christians are saying, no matter what, this is always sinful. You should never do it. No circumstances, no exceptions. And so we're here to say, as, as, as a ministry, we want to be really careful about not going beyond God's word, but staying within God's word. And the biggest question I would ask you is, why are you doing it or why are you not? That's the question you have to answer. Yeah, it's really helpful. And, and just to summarize, it's such an important principle. What you're saying is if the Bible doesn't draw a line, we can't draw the line either. But it doesn't mean that there aren't principles that help us understand where the line is. Correct. And what you're saying with this is you said Romans 14 and even the Ninth Commandment are helpful principles to think about this. Yeah. That's yeah, really great. Sec uh, next question is, is asexuality biblical? I can start this one off, but sure. um, yeah. So this this question kind of gets at uh, one category of sexual identity, right? Like, um, so maybe we could even more broadly zoom out and say, are sexual identities biblical or to call oneself, I'm gay, I'm bi, I'm ace, I'm trans, I'm heterosexual, that these categories of thinking, I would submit to you that those categories themselves are not biblical that there's nowhere in scripture that would say this is a category of your personhood is developed because of your particular attractions. Um, your attractions do not define who you are. And so when we look at asexuality, 
we can apply that same principle and say, okay, so your lack of attractions, does that define a category of personhood that now you should take on? So that's the first piece of the question would be identity itself. But the second one to a struggler who's saying, man, just to be honest, I don't get what everyone's talking about with sex. Like, I'm not that interested. I don't experience sexual desire. I maybe don't experience romantic desire. Is something wrong with me? Why am I like this, right? So there might be another question within that. And I would also place that grappling and that desire in a similar category of other types of suffering maybe that you're facing um, and other sin that you might be struggling with. Um, there are many reasons why someone may have a lack of sexual attraction in their life. Um, I can't, I'm not going to go into all of those reasons, what they are. Um, but I'll say that this is something, along with many other sufferings, sins, and temptations, that can be brought to Christ for help and for healing. And it doesn't define who you are to have a lack of sexual attraction. Yeah, and I might, I might just add to this the principle of when we come to Christ, we are called to submit everything to him, including our desires and lack of desires. And so I think the call of the Christian is to say, Lord, my life in all that it is, is yours. Where I live, who I, where I go to church, what job I take, whether I remain single or get married, when those things occur, that is all in your hands and I am called to submit to your timing, your ways, your, your, your will for my life. And so I think one of the concerns with any of these identity labels is it's kind of saying, Lord, but not this area. This area is, is not open, open hands to you. Um, you will never, I will never be married and nothing you, your will can, can change that because I am asexual or I will never get married because I am gay. And I know I, I can't be in a same-sex marriage, so I just won't get married. I think with all things, we need to be open-handed and saying, your will for my life. And I want to I follow that. It's helpful. And I think the next question is just going to go along that line. Is there a biblical definition of gender dysphoria? How should we minister to those who feel like they are a gender that was not assigned? They are a gender not assigned at birth. There we go. Yeah, this gets, and love to hear your thoughts as well. Um, this gets into a little bit of what I mentioned in our talk regarding how Harvest USA understands any type of struggle and suffering in our lives. And uh, if you get some of our materials, uh, you'll, you'll hear the same metaphor used often in Harvest USA's materials, which is called our tree model. And our tree model goes into a, a variety of different aspects of who we are and our experiences that shape the ways that we struggle and suffer with temptation. And so we would say in some ways, definitely there are distinct aspects to gender dysphoria or to same-sex attraction that are distinct and, and we could say unique to that struggle. But we have a phrase at Harvest USA where we say, we are all more alike than we are different. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. And so what we try and do at Harvest USA is take the unique struggle, gender dysphoria, and then run it through the filter of the common to man aspect of all of our lives. 
and how these struggles are manifesting common to man issues that we actually all can relate to at the deepest level. And we would say even Jesus Christ, though sinless, was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And so even Jesus knows how to be a sympathetic high priest in the midst of that. So that's the principal framework to understand any type of struggle. We would apply gender dysphoria to that the same way we would apply a pornography struggle, the same way we would apply same-sex attraction, recognizing there are unique aspects to that struggle. But the most important thing is understanding, for example, the fact that um, if any of you have heard of Walt Heyer, um, he is a, a man who transitioned to become a woman uh, lived that way for many years and then detransitioned or, or went back to living as his biological sex. And uh, he actually has a website called sexchangeregret.com um, or .org, one of the dots. And, um, and in that, he just tells story after story of, of detransitioners, if you've heard that term. And there's actually a book called, I think it's called Trans Survivors. Um, and in, in that book, he, he, it's just literally probably a hundred or 50 to a hundred different testimonies of people who transitioned and then detransitioned, re realized they, may, they made a, re, a mistake and they want to go back. Um, and the common thread in that book is trauma and abuse being uh, 80% of the stories is somewhere in their, in their story, in their background in some way. And we put that we would put trauma and abuse in, in this larger umbrella of the experiences we go through life shape us. I talked about that a little bit. Experiences, especially in younger childhood that we might not have even been aware of and might not even remember and yet still have a strong shaping influence in our lives. And we go into talking about how those influences influence our desires. They influence our worldviews, the way we think about life, the way we understand things, the way we interpret things. And again, we always have to remember the heart the heart is always active in all of our experiences and all of our desires. Um, and the, the heart fundamentally apart from Christ is fallen. Remember the noetic effects of sin. So there's just so many categories, I would say, biblical categories. And the tree model, if you get some of our material, the tree model walks you through each of those categories. And you could apply that model to gender dysphoria, apply it to same-sex attraction, to all these different things. Yeah, the only thing I would add is just to to maybe pretty directly answer that person's question, gender dysphoria is not a biblical category, but maybe I would reframe it slightly and say, we could consider it to be gender distress. Um, gender dysphoria is a, a diagnostic and statistical manual psychological diagnosis, whereas gender distress is now something that we can put into a biblical frame and say, oh, distress, this person is suffering. The person in front of me who's expressing I have gender dysphoria, what you should hear when they say that is I am suffering and struggling so much in my daily felt experience of my gender. And so how should we respond as Christians with compassion? Um, and you know, in Mark's uh, talk, he, he already got into how do we respond to someone who claims Christ with that experience and someone who doesn't claim Christ. And so I'm not gonna go over that, but I would say respond with compassion for that person's suffering. Mm -hmm. Would you, I'm going to draw you out a little bit more on this one. Would you say, so when we confront the issue, let's say, of gender dysphoria, I appreciate what you said about the first Corinthians passage, no temptation is overtaking what's coming to man. Does that mean don't get overwhelmed by the presenting issue, just trace it down a little yes. bit more? Can you That's say right. more about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we do at Harvest, I mean, Caitlin and I are both 
and our colleagues, we minister to people who come to us struggling with these issues. And the, the worst thing that we could do is assume we know what this person's struggle is like and assume we know what this person needs. Um, that is not how we want to address any person. Uh, the best thing we can do is assume we don't know what this person's experience is like. We might have frameworks, but we need to listen. We need to listen a lot. And in listening, you're listening for those categories that I just mentioned in our tree model uh, that are gonna start to fill out the picture. And it's important to say at Harvest USA, we're not claiming that we're gonna pinpoint the issue. It's like, oh, I know why you experienced gender distress. Here's why, it's because of this specific thing. And that's the whole story. Case closed, my, my, my diagnosis is 100% correct. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not claiming that there is one magic key if you just unlock that, oh, now I understand exactly why I'm struggling in the ways that we do. Uh, the human experience is, is complex and mysterious. And I think the best thing we can do if somebody says that they're struggling or you yourself are struggling is to say, this is gonna be a journey. And that journey needs to happen with other people. Um, I myself have a history, not only of sexual struggles, but also a history of anxiety struggles. And uh, I needed people in my life to walk with me because I didn't understand what was going on. Why am I feeling these things? Why, why am I going through these struggles? I need, to, I need to talk. Some of us are more verbal processors. I think both of us are. I need to just talk a lot. And in talking, maybe the person says something, but just talking about it, oh, like things are coming together. So the relate, see this as a, a long-term relationship, keeping biblical principles in mind. And as you hear things, you're, you're filtering those things through a biblical framework. You're gonna be able to understand kind of the complexity. It's good, the complexity is good. It reveals how wonderful God's design is that he made us so complex. So helpful, thanks. Uh, could it be okay to let people know my struggle while not letting my struggle be my identity? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> such, yes. I love that question, yeah. Um, it's not only okay that you do that, it's this is life in the body of Christ. And I don't even wanna just isolate this to sexual struggles. Rich life in the body of Christ in, in the church together is one of sharing our genuine, real street level struggles and not making it our identity, right? I'm not an anxious Christian. I'm not a lesbian Christian. I'm not a murderer Christian, right? Like I am in Christ, just like Mark was talking about in Romans 6.11. And so, yes, enthusiastically, yes, you should come into the light, share your struggles with one another in safe community. So don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not necessarily a safe thing in every church community, every small group for you to just bust out and say, hey, I, you know, I went to this conference and I, I have same-sex attraction. Everyone help me. Um, you should confide in people who are spiritually mature, who have demonstrated the love of Christ, who share honestly about their own struggles, who you see humility in them, and who you know are trustworthy and will maintain your confidentiality. And so I would say come into the light, and that does not have to be your identity. Amen. Amen. How do, you, how do you keep a married couple, I'll rephrase this, how can a married couple keep from making sex the center of their marriage? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things we could say about that. Um, if we understand sex to be in one ways a celebration 
of and a strengthening of your marriage as a whole, uh, then we can say that sex is a vital part of marriage, but it's not the be all end all or even the most important part of marriage. It's, it's an important part of it. And I would say if, if a couple is seeing sex as the, the kind of, I don't know exactly how, how it was worded, but. The center of their marriage. The, yeah, the center of it. I would want to know why, why is it the center? What about sex has become kind of the focus? Um, for some marriages, maybe there is a degree, especially in the beginning, especially if there's been a history of, of sexual sin in the past, there's a kind of selfishness that's very much uh, at the center of my desire for sex within marriage. And I'm used to satisfying desires on a daily basis, perhaps. And so now that I'm married, well, this is, this is the outlet for it. And I'm used to just having this every day. So we need to have sex every day, that type of thing. Um, another reason sex might be, because again, I don't know the intent behind the word center, but another reason might be because it's a form of contention. Uh, there's a lot of contention about it. And so it's constantly a topic because you guys are arguing over the frequency or, or all those types of things in those, in those matters. And I would say, if you make Christ the center of your marriage, if you see Christ is the one that is actually what brings you together in the deepest way, you know, again, your marriage is temporal temporal to this life. Uh, but your connection in Christ as brother and sister in Christ is eternal. And so if that, it, it's always helpful to think about your marriage as a triangle. And if you're both on, on two bottoms, who's at the center at the top, it's Christ. And the more that you're mo both moving towards Christ, the more you're both moving towards one another. And yes, in that case, if Christ is at the center of your marriage, if Christ is at the center of why you treat your spouse the way that you do, um, there, there's going to be a dance in the desires that's going to beautifully outline what is, what is shown in 1 Corinthians 7. It's like, well, why do I want sex right now? Is it because I just have this bodily urge? Um, or is it because... I desire closeness with my spouse. I desire to celebrate closeness with my spouse. I desire to strengthen closeness with my spouse. I desire to serve them in this particular way. Um, so those would be a few things I might see on that issue. It's helpful. The, the next question is, is maybe the other side of that. So how do I continue to be patient for the sex of marriage? Yeah, yeah um, I, would, uh, I would commend to you a sermon by a guy named Thomas Chalmers, he's an old school guy, and it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And that's a fancy way of saying <laughs> if something greater captures your heart, all the other lesser goods are not as compelling. And so you're probably already drawing that line to say part of the contentment and satisfaction and even joy that we can have in the waiting or in the not having is because we have a greater gift. And the greater gift is Christ himself. And one of the things that I think is, is instructive to us is some of what Mark was talking about, that there is not going to be sex in heaven. And it's an interesting thing to think of, why is that? And But one of the things that we do see is going to be happening in heaven is casting down of our crowns and declaring worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's going to be what we say in heaven. And so I would submit to you the highest joy, the highest satisfaction, the highest pleasure even. Um, 
Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The highest pleasure is in God himself, in Christ. And maybe you're hearing that answer like, wah, wah, okay, <laughs> okay. And I hear you. I hear you on that. Um, but I want, I want my answer to kind of almost stoke a curiosity in you to say, what is she talking about? If you don't know that and you don't experience that joy in Christ himself, because you're in Christ, that's held out to you. And so that connects to waiting for sex and marriage because there can be a deep contentment in not having something because guess what? We're not gonna have all the things that we want in life, but we have Christ now. And that is a truly rich life for a single person who does not have sex, even until the day they die, they will survive. <laughs> Two things I'll say. One, Caitlin's got some great blog articles on her website on these very issues, especially on the issue of, of what it looks like to grow in, in an intimate, abiding relationship with Christ, which truly is fulfilling, which truly we can say, I lack nothing, I shall not want. Um, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you, um, Psalm 73. But the other thing I would say is, uh, I remember there was a man we ministered to you and he talked about his struggle with desire for sex and his singleness as being like in a desert. It's like, I'm in a desert and I'm looking for an oasis. And I said, yeah, you're in a desert, but you're also drinking salt water all the time in the desert. He was going to pornography. He was going to fantasy. He was going to elicit uh, sexual relationships with other people. And so how much is your struggle with patience exacerbated by continually going back to sexual sin, that will not make it any easier. But if you continue by faith, by grace, it's not easy, but, but find yourself in a place where you are able to stay faithful to Christ's call in your life as a single, I believe you will find that contentment is much easily, more easily found than if you're constantly trying to just get little hits of it through pornography and these other types of things. You guys are doing great here. Can I just add one tiny thing to that can. too? Sure. There's a pretty practical element to that question um, about you know waiting for um, sexual expression until marriage. So I would just encourage you, if that's a pretty dominating thing for you or you're, you're really pursuing pornography, masturbation, fantasy on a regular basis to try to stoke that or satisfy that desire, submit yourself to discipleship and ask for help in the practicalities of that. Um, that, that's what that question asker needs is, I don't know how that person lives their life, how they sleep, um, like how, how is their community life? Are they serving in their church? Those things may seem disconnected from that struggle with contentment and perhaps masturbation, but they, they are connected. And so get help in those practical details of your specific situation. Great, thanks. Can a gay person be a Christian? So... Hopefully, if you were tracking with my second talk, a lot of the, I don't know what this questioner means when they say, can a gay person be a Christian? Do they mean, can someone who experiences same-sex attraction does not experience attraction for the opposite sex, can they be a Christian? Yes. Uh, and as a Christian, they are called to submit their life to Christ and put to death desires that are not in conformity to his will and live a life of faithfulness. Um, if when you say by a gay Christian, can a, can a gay person be a Christian? 
Um, if you mean by that, can somebody live a life of pursuing sin and not repenting of it? Then I would say like anyone, obviously we know that the gospel is the free offer of grace. Um, but union with Christ again is a really helpful principle here. Because often when we think about the gospel, we think only about the term justification. What justification means is that our penalty has been paid. Uh, The record of our sin has been wiped clean and we've been given the righteous record of Christ. And that's true, but that's not the whole Christ. That's only part of our union with Christ. That's only one of many benefits. And another benefit of being a Christian, being united to Christ is the doctrine of sanctification. This doctrine of being made more like him, uh, being made more and more to put to death what has already died in sin and rise to life. So it really depends on how you, what, what that person means by a gay person. Can you be a Christian and wrestle with same-sex attraction for the rest of your life? Yes. Uh, but as a Christian, are you wrestling? Are you putting it to death? And as you put it to death day in and day out, you will find the nature of that struggle changes. Does it go away completely? Well, will my struggles with anxiety go away completely before I die? I don't necessarily expect that. But have I seen over the years as I struggle through this change? Yes. It's not that it has disappeared, but the nature of this struggle has changed. And we believe that's true of all struggles, including same-sex attraction. One of the things I, I heard you guys at a staff conference for us a number of years ago, one of the more helpful things I remember from it is one of your staff said that the, the solution, quote-unquote, to homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's actually Jesus. Mm-hmm. Just as the answer to heterosexuality is Jesus. Does that figure into to this? How so? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the call of, of Christ is, n- the goal is not stopping being attracted to the same sex and then developing attractions to the opposite sex. That says nothing about your relationship with Jesus. Now, could that be the result of a life of ongoing repentance? That could be. It could be that over time, as you're denying sinful attractions, God may bring someone into your life of the opposite sex that he calls you to pursue. Uh, That could happen, but that's not the goal. Uh, Marriage is not the... the finish line. Now I'm, now I'm really a good Christian because I finally got married. Uh, that's not the goal. Uh, the goal is a holiness. That's what we say. Not heterosexuality, but holiness is the call of the Christian. Whether we are married or single, the call is to put to death sins that have already died and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the principle of each spouse's rights and bodies belonging to the other, Where does the obligation to sexually serve the other fall when there is previous sexual trauma or severe trepidation or or fear? Who sacrifices? Yeah, Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's, as Mark said in his talk, sexual union in marriage is about serving, loving, cherishing um, the other, right? And so if we were to put put sex into this scenario, the question, well, who's going to sacrifice? I would say both are to sacrifice, but 
in the question, I'm also hearing that some very special tender care is needed for one of those spouses because that spouse has been very um, hurt and sinned against. And just like if a couple, um, maybe one of them has the flu, I wouldn't say, well, who should sacrifice? Maybe the person with the flu should get up and start vacuuming because they normally do. I would say the weaker one and the one who's really hurting needs to be cared for. That needs to be prioritized in that time. And that call of mutual submission, mutual sacrifice still remains in marriage. But a marriage that has been, the sexual union in marriage that's been impacted by sexual sin or um, sexual abuse, that, that requires some specific tender care and, and I think also pastoral care to speak into that, that marriage union. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's such a, and unfortunately, a very common experience. I mean, the, the rate of people who have been sexually abused is, is quite high. And so, and many of them will enter into marriage. And the reality is there, it's rare that any two people enter into a marriage and, and sex is not difficult in one way or another. And there's not difficulty and pain and suffering and struggles within that. Again, God's good design is, is corrupted now in a fallen world. And so there's a lot of struggles that, that marriage goes through. But again, I think this is a great example of how you handle that situation is a, is a picture of how you're going to handle everything in your marriage. And so, uh, so I think for the person who, who desires this, but their spouse ha, has, has this trauma in their background, this fear, exactly what Caitlin's saying is this tender care for the weaker person in that situation and not assuming and expecting them to act in a way as if that didn't happen, that that's not in their past. But I think at the same time, there's a question of the person who does have this in their past is, is there an openness to the Lord to say, Lord, might you want to do something in my life? Might you call me to pursue certain things like counseling or other things that would lead over time to an experience of greater healing? And might I do that because I do want to love my spouse. I do want to get to a place. I'm not there right now, but I want to get to that place. And in love, I'm going to pursue that counseling and those types of things. So I think it is a, it is a both and in that sense. Two more questions because we're, we're just about out of time. And I'm going to throw this one in. I think whenever we deal with a, an issue like this, on the one side, there's tremendous longing and desire. Because like, what the Bible paints is so attractive in some ways. But on the other side, there's so much shame and regret that we're bringing along. How does the gospel meet us in the middle of all of that mess? Yeah, yeah. that's great. That's a good one. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I can start. I'll just say... Um, the gospel is all about redemption. It's all about what we could not do for ourselves. God has done for us. And so again, I would encourage you go back and read Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. That's that passage I read about Jesus washing the church as the bride, uh, cleansing her, making her into the spotless Lamb, And so if you have things in your past and you're like, I'm going to go into marriage and I'm going to bring this shame into it, 
Jesus came for this very purpose. He bore that shame. He took it upon himself and then he gives you his righteousness. And again, that's not a one and done thing. It doesn't happen immediately, but this is the gospel life. This is what the life of the Christian is constantly. And again, this is something that uh, it's, there are going to be seasons of this, uh, but this is, this is exactly the hope that we have. And I think it applies especially, and it, it's just amazing that the Bible speaks so specifically about marriage and these issues and relates it to these issues of shame and, and bringing baggage and seeing how Jesus wants to clean us up. But again, it's not a just believe the Bible, just trust in Jesus and you won't feel that shame anymore. It's about the relationship that you have with him. It's the relationship of a, of a daily washing, a daily coming to him, a daily experiencing the greater redemption and freedom that you have. This is why John 15 is so critical in this. It's, John 15 is all about abiding in Christ. I in you, you in me, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, apart from an abiding daily walk with him, shame is gonna rule us in these things. But in him, through him, persevering with him, uh, redemption is really truly possible. And there's countless stories we could tell you of broken paths that are made whole, not fully in this life. Wholeness is ultimately in the life to come, but a picture of the life to come and the wholeness he brings now. And I appreciate you made that point really powerfully in one of your talks that the Christian life isn't about achieving an identity, it's actually living out of the identity that we now have in Christ. You listed, right. you're not a thief, you're not, you, yeah. you, you are in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, and we yes. can live out of that. Last question is this, uh, if they wanna get more involved in the ministry of Harvest USA, yes. there you go. That's Thanks for the teeing that up. There you yes. go, there you Thank go, you balls so on the tee there. I was gonna forget about that, yes. Thank you. Uh, so, um, this was, this was scripted a little bit. So I, uh, a lot of it. <laughs> I want to encourage you, um, what we're doing here today, we believe is so fundamental, especially to our day and age right now, where, uh, you are on college campuses that are not speaking the message that we are speaking today. Uh, you are hearing messages probably daily that are 180 degree opposites of what we're saying here today. And it's not only college campuses, but it's parents. Uh, parents who are raising children and don't know how to navigate all of the questions that are coming that my parents didn't have to deal with. Um, and, and so there is a part of our ministry called the student outreach. Uh, it's a position that is specifically tailored to addressing issues for youth and issues for parents, issues for college students, issues for youth pastors, these types of things. And we used to have people in that position. We don't right now. And we're looking for someone to fill that position. So maybe the Lord's pulling your heart. Maybe you know someone. Uh, this is a role we see as vital. Um, if we had that person, that person would probably be here today giving this talk and not me, but we're looking for that person. Um, so, so please consider that. Uh, we're also hiring for a women's ministry position. Ew. And I'm so glad that we have our director of women's ministry here. So if that interests you at all, uh, our women's ministry really has two branches. We have ministry to women who are struggling themselves with any type of sexual struggle, but it also encompasses ministry to wives of husbands who are struggling sexually. Often in church settings, the husband gets a lot of attention, but the wife can sometimes be left in the dust uh, or vice versa. And so uh, Caitlin is involved in both of those spheres of ministry and our women's ministry. And so if you're interested 
interested to know more about those two positions in particular, uh, please check, check that. Talk to us. Check out our website. We have the positions posted on our website. Um, and please pray for us. And please also consider we are a nonprofit ministry, just like Disciple Makers. We raise our own support. And uh, we, we were able to do this because people in the church have come, come alongside us and believe in what we're doing. Thanks, Mark. If, thank you for those of you who submitted questions. If we didn't get to them, please don't take it personally. There were just far too many questions, so don't think, oh, maybe my question wasn't important. It certainly was, and that's why they're going to hang around for at least another hour. So the resource table is here. Mark and Caitlin will, will be at lunch a little bit after lunch, and if you want a private conversation with them, they'd be fine saying, can we eat out on the porch and just talk privately? So let me just pray to close our time. God, we're just very, very thankful for our time together this morning. Help us, Lord, to think through things well according to your word and represent you well as we live for Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.